happening now. We'd like to welcome our guests from around the United States and around the world. You're listening to the final EdTech Situation Room for the year 2016. Today is December the 30th. I am Wes Fryer, joining from Oklahoma City, and I am fresh out of the car from a trip, but Jason Neifer is straight out of the airplane. So, Jason, welcome. Thank you, Wes. Uh, yeah, I started traveling back from Paris, France about 48 hours ago and uh, stopped in Iceland for a little while, stopped in Portland overnight, and now I am finally back in fabulous Missoula, Montana, um, where I seem to be, um, other than having um, uh, wilder hair from the humidity, um, I am uh, full of stories and tales of, of Western Europe, so it's great to be back in the United States. That is awesome, and we are joined tonight by Eric Langhorst, who has had to endure a difficult bowl game, which we won't uh, talk about a great deal, but actually, it, it is interesting that I'm wearing my colors and, and Eric is wearing his colors. Good yeah, evening, Eric. Hi, my name's uh, Eric Langhorst. I teach in Liberty, Missouri, and I have not been traveling. We stayed home uh, over break, so I've basically been a couch potato, watched Netflix, been cleaning the house, uh, not traveling the world or Kansas as you guys have, um, but uh, enjoying kind of a little bit of downtime here at home. That is awesome. Well, uh, we started, is, is this the third year for the EdTech Year in Review, or would this be the fourth? Uh, it's third or fourth. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, it's the third or fourth. And Eric has been with us each year, and we've wanted to get Eric back on on the show, but Wednesday nights haven't been a great night. And anyway, it's it's great that, that we're here. So <clears throat> after last year's show, I actually received an email from, I, I think, uh, a college radio station that must be desperate for content. It, it, I think it was in – might have been – it's not the University of Montana. What's in Bozeman? Is that Montana uh, Montana State University. Yes, and I think they they had asked if they could syndicate our show, you know, to just play it on a regular basis. But that, maybe that was two years ago. That was before we started the the regular show. So anyway, we hope that we'll bring you a good show this uh, this evening. Uh, if you would like, you can check out our show notes uh, and links at edtechsr.com slash links. And we do have a live chat room, which I will finagle here in a little bit to get open on my laptop. It is a little challenging when you're in the Hangout because the uh, chat room link is on the actual YouTube page. Uh, but we will go ahead and have that up. And if you'd like to ask us any questions, normally we are going down a list of recent EdTech articles. We have been off for holidays and uh, vacations for a couple weeks now. And our plan tonight is really to recap what we see as some of the top topics and articles from the entire year which is probably, I don't know if it was for you guys, but it was a little difficult for me just having had so much happen in the fall. It's difficult to even look back at the spring to to put those things in uh, perspective. But we'll also do some Geeks of the Week, and I know we're going to have to know a little bit about <clears throat> Jason's exciting adventures uh, for what he, what he will reveal to us. So um, uh, who would like to, to kick us off with a story? I think guess first. Eric, go ahead. All right. Well, I guess uh, I teach U.S. history, and uh, one of the main topics here, of course, has been the election. You guys may have heard about that that happened recently. So, um, But probably the whole issue of fake news has been huge, especially with the grade level that I teach as eighth graders, because I think there's kind of that era where they're you know getting involved and kind of following news more and things like that. But um, I did include a couple of links there. There was a huge story. Um, Stanford did a, a like a research uh, article, um, NPR picked it up. Um, there's been tons of articles about this um, epidemic of students not really 
being able to disseminate between real news and fake news. And as a teacher, that really puts us on the front line, I think, of kind of, you know, bringing to the front some of these media literacy things that we've been talking about for, you know, over a decade that I think is really becoming kind of more of an issue now. And I think it's always interesting. Whenever there's an election, it seems like different issues, whether they be tech or otherwise, kind of like boil to the top or maybe they've been an issue, but they haven't really become mainstream. So like, you know, I think back to kind of Twitter really kind of coming into its own politically in 2012 and, and how that was used in the election 2008 to a certain extent, but also 2012. And then just the whole like social media content just really exploded this year. And one of my takes on it, and when you read these articles, you know, people are amazed that like middle school students or high school students or even college students aren't really spending that much time finding news or listening to news. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is when I was growing up, and I think we're all relatively the same age here, you know, we think of ABC, NBC, CBS. They were both our source for entertainment content as well as news content. And really, these students today, they're not going to those same sources for their entertainment content. They're going to a YouTuber, for example. So, you know, one of their kind of like hurdles of is this legitimate or not is completely different than what a lot of us have because it used to just be you had to be a big, you know, news entity like CBS, NBC, whatever. And now there's so many places and they get entertainment from so many places. They also don't really worry about is their entertainment legit or mainstream, I guess. So this has been an interesting topic in our classroom, I guess, because our students are getting so many different news sources, um, we do have to spend time to talk about, you know, what is your crap detector? How do you figure out what's legitimate? Um, things like that. Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the articles that was troubling to me that we shared before the election was the one that was indicating many civics and social studies teachers were not talking about the election because things were so heated and, and so contentious. And, um, I, uh, I was just, I listened to a couple end of, end of the year podcasts on our, on our trip driving home tonight. And, uh, one of them was talking about, I, I think this was the clockwise podcast, how, how bad it was that we didn't see Facebook, especially, you know, step up to this top, to this issue and see themselves as a media company. And so I definitely agree that fake news, uh, was one of the biggest, uh, issues of, uh, of the year and, the need for information literacy and your reference to crap detector, of course, is Neil Postman, who I'm sure we've mentioned before on the show. And really, you can almost see the election as the culmination of his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, in terms of, you know, how everybody wanted to wanted to see what Trump was going to do next. And, you know, all the millions of dollars of free airtime that, that he got from from the news agencies because, you know, they knew people would watch if, if he was going to be on there. So uh, I don't know. I I. It would probably be a good thing for me as a tech director to think about addressing in the coming year uh, explicitly with our teachers in the context of, of digital citizenship, which we're talking about, but digital literacy and, and talking about that whole fake news piece. What's your take, Jason? Uh, I, you know, and, and as a, a former classroom social studies teacher myself, I, I've watched in dismay the last, I would say the last 10 years, but it's really been prominent the last 24 months on on how little really thought goes into um, I, it, it makes me sound really old when I say this. Younger people's use of the internet, but I'm particularly troubled by college and high school students 
and um, the their their lack of critical thinking and utilizing social media and 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 I also have a particular uh, uh, question about search because the um, the bottom line is is that um, there is a, there is a lot of 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 movement in teaching I think that that somehow knowledge acquisition is not a classroom event anymore because because Google exists and I couldn't disagree more with that notion because uh, if you're not actively teaching Google search as a critical thinking strategy and using it only as a knowledge acquisition exercise I think it falls prey to exactly what we're talking about here the fake news phenomenon and um, the bottom line is is that um, you know fake news clickbait, whatever uh, moniker you want to add to this particular phenomenon is very real. And I don't think a lot of folks, and, and, and I include a lot of, of, of otherwise smart, uh, informed adults, are doing enough reading of sources, evaluating, they're sharing the fantastic over the factual. And it's become, a, 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 a I think, an issue that's really a, a critical issue in, in our country, in our um, in our democracy. And, you know, I, I honestly think that that this would have been um, an important topic no matter who had won the presidential election because I think this election was dominated by a just an amazing source of half-truths and and really shockingly uh, inaccurate content that's now um, you know kind of masquerading as as news and so I don't know what the answer to it is um, I've been in some uh, I've actually tried to stay out of political arguments on Facebook because it's Facebook and political arguments are, are awful um, on that particular medium. Um, I have had friends, otherwise informed, awesome friends, call out all news media as being problematic during this particular election cycle. I don't really agree with that notion because I think there's certainly levels between the people that are straight up making up news and uh, mainstream news sources that... Um, uh, you know, I think missed the boat um, on a lot of critical issues during the election. But I, I think that the, the only thing we, we really can do at this point is, is really try an educational solution to it. Um, and, and I'll say this, and I people disagree with me on this, I but I, I feel this very, very close to my heart. You can't set kids off on the Internet to gather facts without some at least background or skill development on on checking the source and triangulating information together to try to come up with factual reality or at least a perspective to believe in. And I, I have a strong worry um, uh, about this notion that we can replace teachers with computers and, and internet search because I think that a world where teaching is somehow less important or or minimized or or uh, replaced by you know students uh, and 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 I, I want to say this very carefully uh, a student that's empowered to learn on their own without any guidance or or direction. Um, you know, there are certain students that would really excel in that environment and do very well, but I think the majority, maybe the vast majority of our students need more development than that. And I think most social studies teachers would agree with me there. Um, I think most librarians have been saying this for 25 years. They were the ones holding up signs about this a long, long time ago, but I, I do think we need some soul searching in education and figure out how we need to take a proactive solution on this particular issue. <coughs> Pardon me. <laughs> Pardon me while I cough. Um, well, in fact, I'll, I'll ask a question. I'm going to segue us, I think, to, to my first topic, but I'll, I'll throw this to Eric. You're teaching broadcasting, Eric. Does this uh, raise issues as far as students being publishers, and do you see yourself you know, utilize, <coughs> utilizing this issue in the coming year with students? Well, I mean, we create like a weekly 
news show. And obviously we're not reporting like national news and that kind of stuff. But I think that just the whole, like the dynamics of students realizing, Hey, I can create content. I can publish it on YouTube and it's going to be seen by literally thousands of people. I mean, we put it on our, our school page, our Facebook page, and you know, it, it does get viewed by a lot of different people. So automatically, regardless of the content, they're seeing an example of, Hey, I'm creating content. I don't necessarily have to be the most reliable source and yet it's getting out there. I mean, you know, they're watching PewDiePie and they're watching all these people that have basically no essential credibility creating content that's becoming huge and mainstream. And so obviously I think there's a transfer where they realize they can also be producers of content, whether or not they fundamentally have to, you know, check themselves and those kinds of things. I mean, we don't do a lot of high level, you know, broadcasting type things. We're mainly teaching them the mechanics of being able to edit and they're just doing small stories around school and things. But I think they see the power of being able to publish and seeing that they can create an audience very quickly. And so in the fake news cycle, it's all about, to me, my opinion, it's all about obviously clickbait fast, you know, like triangulation. How many times are my students going to triangulate a story? You know, if it's something that's super, super important, then yes, they should be triangulating that and making sure that it's accurate. And so then the question becomes, well, at what point do they feel like something is important enough that they're going to spend the time to triangulate on? And if it's something like a political election, they should, you know, as adults, I, I would hope that if it's a, a cornerstone of you deciding how you're going to vote in this election, you would be checking multiple sources. If it's something that is just a news type thing, you know, they're probably not going to spend a lot of time investigating it. And that's where I think it becomes really blurry is because they have to first make a decision. Should I, is this important enough that I should fact check it? Or is it just some like information that's interesting or flashy or that kind of stuff? So I don't know. I mean, it's just, they have so much stuff that they have to make that decision on what they're going to fact. I mean, and I get all these things still, you know, people, hey, Southwest Airlines is giving away free, like, I mean, you snoops people and find out, is this real? Is it not? I have adults that are very smart people that still get emails from with things that obviously are not real or true. And so. Absolutely. Well, uh, I want to segue this to my first uh, topic, which is uh, artificial intelligence and Google. And <clears throat> We've, we've had this one on the show, uh, Sundar Pichai, who, as uh, probably most folks realize, is now the CEO of Google, which is just part of Alphabet, <clears throat> because Google has, has broken itself into these different pieces, where uh, Larry Page is still over the entire the entire show, so to speak, with Alphabet, but the, the Google portion, which is really focused on search and uh, advertising, and, and then products, which, you know, include... Uh, the Pixel phone, the Chromecast, the new Wi-Fi that Jason is, uh, I think, enjoying tonight, um, and um, now this Google Home to to take take a spot along with Alexa for Amazon, and then you know Apple having having Siri. Um, this caught my attention, and so even for tonight, I read some more articles and I watched the whole 12-minute video of Pachai in October, you know, talking about the Google Assistant AI. And I really, I really do think, as far as a crystal ball, he's on the money. Where he says there's, there's been four major computing, you know, eras. We had the era of the PC starting in the early '80s. Oops, we lost uh, 
we lost Eric. Hopefully he'll be back. Um, we had the, the, the era of the PC. We had the era of, of the internet coming in. Uh, and being up in Kansas with my parents and uh, helping my mom upgrade and remind, you know, I had some of my formative experiences with TCP IP and, you know, Mac OS 7 and, you know, getting, getting stuff online. But that whole era of getting on the internet really transformed a lot of things for us. But then the smartphone, which, you know, almost it's nine years ago. It's 2007 when Steve Jobs announced that at Macworld. I was there to, to see that. And so now Pachai says, the era of AI is here. And the segue to what um, Eric kicked us off with thinking about fake news is now that you can just speak if you have a, a Google Assistant or Alexa or if you've got Hello Siri, you know, and just ask questions. And this cloud-based AI is going to keep getting better to where it can be conversational, to where it can be your own Google, to where it's really going to have an uncannily incredible amount of, of information about each one of us, but also ability to help us and provide assistance. I think just like fake news has put this issue of you're a publisher and you need to vet information in our faces to a greater degree maybe than it has been before, having a Google Assistant or Alexa right there where you can ask any question and get any answer might put this idea in the in the face of us as, as classroom teachers, technology directors, admins, you know, we need to be doing far more than looking for answers that Alexa and, you know, Google, uh, Google Assistant can, can answer. So I think this is one of, it's just a huge thing to get around our heads is what does this mean? And in the same way that it would have been almost impossible. I remember in 2007 in Macworld, I was <clears throat> in San Francisco with my cousin Devin and after, you know, hearing Steve, uh, Jobs give the announcement. And at the very end, he says, Oh, and by the way, we're no longer Apple computer. We're just Apple. You know, you're realizing this is a seismic change. And we did a little podcast, you know, trying to talk about what does it mean? I feel like I'm similarly incapable of fully articulating what this means. But just like then we said, this is a huge deal as far as the smartphone and what it's going to, it's it, what it entails. I, I have that same sense with AI. So you guys thoughts. Yeah. I, I would jump in and just quickly say that, um, you know, I am surprised how useful subtle inputs of of uh, predictive and artificial intelligence is becoming in my own personal life. Um, I, I'm I'm a, a deep into Google in my world, so I use an Android smartphone. Um, Google Now is is kind of an umbrella for a lot of different services that that Google puts on that uh, on those devices. But every couple of days, uh, actually more accurately every couple of weeks, it seems like when I go to the Google Now page, which is a, a, a part of the, the operating system, I can just swipe uh, 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 to the right and suddenly I have access to things it thinks I might be interested in. I mean, to, to give a, an example of this, um, I, I had a smartphone uh, that was active when I was in Europe uh, utilizing local SIM cards. And, you know, in the morning, it would remind me how to say bonjour uh, to, to people. And in the afternoon it, or at lunchtime, I, I'd go to Google now and it would remind me how to say uh, how to get my check at a restaurant in French. Um, and it would show me um, uh, uh, areas nearby based on the other things I had been looking or I've been showing up at. And it's slowly and surely they're building a really interesting infrastructure around me that I like and enjoy. I do think it's a cautionary tale, though, that we, we need to be at least cognizant, if not actively monitoring 
um, you know, it's it's one thing to uh, you know to recommend other museums while I'm staying at the Louvre in in in, in France. It's another one entirely to uh, you know maybe suggest uh, a political uh, articles. Uh, that um, you know may or may not, or may may seem to agree with me based on other articles I've read, but don't provide any additional insight. Or worse, the logarithm is going to feed me things that are are half truths or or distrues, if you will. Um, and and I, I I'm becoming more cognizant of that in the year of fake news. And so um, you know, obviously the the uh, personal input. Um, Crowdsourcing is what powers a lot of these AI technologies, and the crowd isn't always right, as it turns out. So um, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that these things are increasingly awesome. Um, I will report, obviously, I have my, my uh, Google Home that's still active. Uh, okay, Google, good evening. Good evening, Jason. It is 22 p.m. And I love it. The weather in Missoula currently is 28 degrees and partly cloudy with a high of 38 degrees. Okay, Google, stop. Like that, like I, it's amazing still to me. Like this is just such awesome technology and it's, uh, you know, it's barely functional yet compared to where I think Google will ultimately go with this. But all that comes as a, you know, as a, uh, at a cost, I think. And so being cognizant of that, I think is, is pretty important. So, um, awesome. And obviously Google and Apple and Microsoft, um, all of these platforms are going all in on these technologies because it really is the future. But, um, I think it has to be a cautionary tale. Eric, where are you with, uh, Android, iOS, Google AI, are you dabbling? Yeah, we bought a Echo Dot maybe about a month ago. Um, I think it, the price point went down to maybe like $40, so we decided to get one. And so we use it at home, um, and like most of what we use it for is like, hey, Alexa, set a timer for four minutes when we're making like coffee or the girls want a timer for doing chores or a lot of times we really just play a lot of music off of it. The girls will ask a, a specific song or artist. Um, it was interesting. There was an article, I don't know, if, or a news story. I don't know if you guys saw it in the last two days. Um, there was a murder down in, I believe, Arkansas, and they want to um, yes. basically confiscate yep. the owner's um, echo so that they can see. And Amazon is resisting giving out that information, but to see you know, if there was like dialogue captured that would, yeah, you know, I guess to see if, the, yeah, dialogue or any kind of, you know, any request, I guess, for information or anything. So, I mean, yeah, I think that it's an interesting, it's a very, you know, kind of almost spooky, dangerous type thing in some ways. I use Google now on my phone and, you know, it's always pretty amazing when, you know, it pops up and, anticipates like, hey, you need to get on the road. You know, like if I have a meeting scheduled, it'll be like, hey, you need to get in your car and get on the road to get to your meeting that's a half hour away and traffic is relatively busy right now. I mean, like stuff like that kind of freaks me out. But, you know, obviously very helpful, but it's it's going to be interesting to see how we navigate and really what kind of place it, uh, what type of role it starts to play in the classroom. I mean, I've thought about using, you know, um, Alexa in the classroom. I don't really know exactly how we would use it. Um, if a student comes up with some interesting type of question and we want an answer to it, you know, we can literally type it and start to get some information in almost the same amount of time. So it's not like it's going to be like, you know, exponentially faster or anything. But, um, yeah, so we're kind of, 
kind of playing with it at home a little bit. On a technical note, I'm seeing that the the Amazon Echo is selling for 179 and the Echo Dot for 49. So, do you have a functional hit or what's why would anybody want to get the full Echo if the Dot is is so I think less? it's a better speaker um cuz essentially you could hook up the Dot to like a Bluetooth speaker. I mean, our our girls like to listen to a lot of music or my wife's been using it a lot actually. It's kind of almost kind of replaced our record player in some ways during Christmas because we usually play a lot of vinyl records during Christmas. And my wife, um, because we have Amazon prime just says like Alexa play some Christmas music and it starts to, you know, kind of find out what she likes and stuff. So we use it for a lot of music and it probably doesn't have, it, I know it doesn't have as good a speaker as the uh, echo. Um, but price point wise, I mean, you could plug it into something else if you wanted to. Well, you know, I've decided, I think I'll write a blog post about this. 2016 was the year that I started talking to my phone every day. And that was really a big change as far as being able to to reliably do speech to text. And I don't know, maybe I was doing more of it, but, you know, even in the holidays being up with, with my parents, you know, I was answering some email, you know, yesterday. My mom was like, are you what? You know, she didn't realize I was. I was just, you know, inputting text with my voice because it was a lot faster to do on my phone than, you know, sit there and try to try to type it in. So I think that was a real transformative thing for me. And again, it's it's one of these things that we're only starting to see the uh, be at be at the cusp of and the edge of. And it, it I don't know, maybe it's a little bit like Google Glass, you know, Google Glass in the classroom. Whoa, what's that going to do? Well, it's going to be kind of a a cool thing, but I don't know that it's going to really affect instruction or, you know, change, you know, things in, in terms of the dynamics in the classroom. Um, but uh, I, I still, AI was going to. So I was gonna say, I still feel like socially, like awkward talking to my phone, even like if I'm by myself, like in my house or in my classroom, it's just still like, I haven't like crossed that hurdle yet where it becomes like second nature for me to just start talking. Even if I'm texting my wife or something, um, I don't do it as much as I could, I think just because it's still, it feels weird to me socially and I haven't overcome that yet. Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, just like seeing people in the grocery store, you know, talking to themselves and, you know, norm norms change. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm finding myself dictating a lot more and, and I, uh, I remember not too long ago hearing about, you know, superintendents in our state who, who were still not using email and were having their secretaries, you know, dictating to them. I thought, what the heck, you know, who would ever do that? And it, it's that, that the, the Google assistant, you know, metaphor and their whole goal is really to step into that, that role to be the, the Uber helpful assistant that anticipates your needs and is able to not only, you know, take your dictations, but be able to forecast your, forecast your needs. And I, you know, and, and, and I don't know, that's, I think that we need, I, I want to regularly hear people talk about how are you using Siri? How are you using, you know, your, your Amazon device or your Google device to do things that are a little more than parlor tricks, you know, cause it seems like there's some of it still parlor tricks, but I'll, I will say this when Jason first showed his and he just said, you know, I, I guess I got to be careful cause maybe she'll hear me, but he's got his headset on. So she won't hear me and respond, but say, you know, hi Google, um, you know, play the the latest episode of, of the EdTech situation room. 
that is actually pretty transformative because, you know, podcasting is still a pretty, a, a somewhat geeky thing as far as people, you know, subscribing and getting the episode and having the app. And, and so this idea of having this ubiquitous, you know, device that's just here and I can just talk to it and I can do something complex, like find this podcast feed on the web and play it for me, you know, that skips a lot of steps. And so I don't know. I, I want to, I'm going to start keeping a scorecard of things that, that kind of fit into that. So we've got uh, both Peggy George and Jamie Camp in the chat room. And so Jamie is admitting that she talks to her phone regularly, but not daily yet. So um, that's probably something that we could probably see a graph of as far as, you know, I don't know, we're, we're probably on the, on the edge of geekdom if we're talking to our phone right. at a time. Well, I'm looking forward to 2017, something that's definitely going to occur. And, and Amazon's already well ahead of Google on this front, but I think it's, it's, it's going to catch up a bit in 2017. But, you know, it's the hooks into other applications that I think are going to be real winners for these platforms. Um, now that Google is, uh, is starting to open up their APIs to allow other applications to, to access the, the Google Home infrastructure, I mean, I expect to be able to you know, not just turn lights on and off. It's, you know, asking Google to, you know, uh, set up my Christmas light setup, which might be two bulbs on in the living room, plus the Christmas lights, plus a lamp in, in the kitchen. Or, you know, there's, I think things are going to become more complex in that way. Or, you know, uh, say to Google, um, I'm ready to leave now. Um, and it's going to open up the garage door. It's going to turn on the lights off and then it's going to set the thermostat to, to, you know, to 62 degrees or something along those lines. And I think that as soon as, as these, uh, platforms evolve, it's, I, I agree with you very much, Wes, about the parlor trick nature of this is, is, uh, is, is interesting, but not useful yet. But that's going to evolve quite quickly, I think. And, um, you know, I don't think the Internet of Things world has caught up yet to the daily technology, right? Like, I, I don't think people, even if they have a lot of smart devices, are utilizing them in a transformative way yet. But subtly and maybe even in the background, it's going to happen. And then one day it'll just be really, really awesome and probably a little creepy, too. So I, I think 2017 will be continue to transform and, and head in that direction. Well, Jason, do you want to take us to one of your your first topics or either, sure. either one of yours? Um, I think that the, that uh, the probably the, the best segue is into security in 2016 and um I, you know, we, we talk about this, um, on this podcast probably more than, than other, uh, ed tech efforts do, partially because I think we're, we're, we're geeks and we, we think and worry about this a lot. But I think 2016 was a banner year, um, for clear threats that technology provides in regards to security issues. Whether you're talking about the election itself, where there was obviously some interference from another country, um, uh, something that that is obviously uh, uh, very troubling, whether you like the uh, election of the results or not. Um, and more importantly, major companies came out with, you know, literally uh, 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 hundreds of billions of passwords stolen um, in, in, in different ways and at different times. The most prominent one, obviously, was the Yahoo uh, 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 note that they had lost a half billion users worth of passwords. Um uh, in, in 2014, but Dropbox experienced or announced an issue earlier this year. Adobe had problems. Major providers of, of online services are, are, are subject to hacking. And one thing that um, we could certainly talk about in, in detail, but I did put two articles in that are pretty great. One of them is from the How To Geek, which is, uh, you know, your passwords really suck. 
Um, and so you should take strategies now to fix your password problems. Um, there's also a really excellent article uh, called What You Must Learn from the Big Security Events of 2016 from Make Use Of. Uh, it's also, both of them talk a lot about, you know, a unique passwords, the use of password managers and that sort of thing. But if you're not adopting better strategies now uh, for security, 2017 is an excellent time to do so. And um, as we talked about in in a hundred other ways, in, in since we started this this effort on, on the podcast, is that you should be helping students with this, right? Uh, modeling it, uh, uh, talking about this, and you know, uh, not necessarily as as an independent lesson, but um, you know, if if the the John Podesta email hack. Um, which was ended up being a, a typo. Uh, he had done the right thing and asked someone about an email that he had been sent about a fake Google uh, Docs notification, and someone had uh, uh, typed uh, legitimate instead of illegitimate. Um, you know that that led to a situation. But but having people become a little more cynical about the online services that they're using and take basic proactive steps to securing your your online privacy is 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 pretty important. Um, so I, I guess where I maybe want to start with this, uh, Eric, you're 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 with the students uh, actively uh, daily in a classroom. Do these topics come up uh, from your students at all? Do you hear about hacks or issues related to this from your kiddos? Um, you know, it doesn't come up in conversation much. I mean, I know initially, like when we do our digital citizenship type stuff, you know, they talk about um, passwords a little bit. The school we, we're a Google for App school. Um, Google for Apps Education School, and they they you know assign the student the school password. So um, I don't really hear them talking too much about their private emails or you know being hacked or anything. I can't remember a conversation about that. Um, I do feel sometimes, not a lot, but sometimes students are a little bit cavalier about their passwords. Um, you know, maybe giving it to somebody else real quick or something like that. Um, but with Google Docs and the collaborative nature. It's not really like they have to like let anybody else log in. They just, you know, share a document or anything with them. So I, I honestly don't really hear them talking too much about security at the eighth grade level. Wow. And, uh, and then and to me, that says that, you know, that's why in the classroom, you know, we need to be introducing those topics more. Um, do you, um, do you, uh, so the reason why I ask this is because this, this has come up as a topic with, we have folks working in our office that, are like 20 and early 30 somethings. And I hear from them relatively often about either their friends that had uh, email hacked into by other like people that knew them like nefarious uh, uh, acquaintances. Um, uh, I would assume that, that not hearing about the classroom means you don't hear about that kind of like style of cyberbullying in that way either. Um, I haven't actually, I haven't heard them talking about, you know, a friend hacking in or anything like that. So interesting stuff. Um, Wes, what about you as a tech director? Where how, how has this impacted you in the last year? Oh my gosh! Well, you know, just doing our show and focusing on these issues uh, has 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 helped raise the level of focus and awareness I have of security issues. Um, we've certainly been hypersensitive to discussions about ransomware. You know, I've seen more malware on Macs in the last year than ever before in my life. Um, this, the, on a personal level. Uh, I'm going to be helping my kids uh, on their MacBooks install antivirus for the first time. We've never run that at home. 
Um, and also just kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to check out these articles that you've shared. There's some others. I, I wrote a post a, a week or so ago about, you know, give your family the gift of security for the holidays, because I really think that, you know, the answer to all this isn't just let's be scared and, and, and get, you know, the, the hype going to more and more. We do want people to, we want to have people's attention, but, you know, turning on two-step verification everywhere you can, using a password manager, generating a different password for each one. I don't know if I've said this on the show. I think I probably did last time, but Miguel Gulen had shared a website, uh, Have I Been Pawned? I think I'll put it in the show notes. And it shows you when you put your email address in, if that particular email account was part of a compromise and, and mine sure enough was part of an Adobe uh, hacked compromise and also one on LinkedIn. And we are probably almost universally guilty at some point of using the same password on more than one site. And, you know, this is one of those, it's really a big norm that needs to change. And so I think as a tech director, I see that as part of my responsibility, not only for our campus and for our networking resources, but also for the, the education and safety of our users to help people shift normal where if I was to do a survey, I think certainly less than 25%, maybe even less than 10% of our users. And we've got about, you know, 175 faculty and staff are using a password manager today. It, and, and I think I'm, that might be something I'll measure at the beginning of this year, try to anyway with a short survey and then see how we move that needle. Because one of the things that I've been wanting to do, and, and we just in December had a meeting of tech directors for our, our uh, Southwestern conference. It was down in Houston and uh, there was one school that has implemented two-step verification for their teachers. And I really like how they did it because they gave them a whole semester where they talked about it and shared it and said, this is what it's going to be. And you can do text messages or the, you know, security app. Um, and then by the time they actually turned it on where everyone had to do it, they only had about five people that had not switched over yet. Uh, I don't think it's reasonable to do for students. You know, we, on our middle school level, you know, still have our kids keep, keep their phones and devices in their backpacks. It's only BYOD really at our high school. So, uh, it's not, not going to be a student thing, but certainly for a faculty and staff thing. Um, I, I just think that the need for this, I mean, the, the Yahoo thing is such a big deal with a billion hacked accounts and happening way back in 2013. You know, it, it, it almost put it, it almost pushes me over the edge to say, I guess I need to migrate my 40,000 Flickr photos, you know, to Google, to Google photos, uh, and to really start on a backup plan. Cause I, I just think Yahoo is dying. I don't see any signs of, of resurrection there. Uh, Flickr has been one of my favorite, favorite sites since the beginning of the web 2.0 revolution. But anyway, the security thing is, it's certainly something that I see as a, as a tech director, but not just in that professional role as a parent, you know, as a son, these are important things that I, I need to help, help people with. And it's not just the here, let me help you do your updates and, you know, clean up your desktop. And, and uh, what, what was that when you, you know, defrag or whatever, you know, I mean, this is like, let's protect your identity. Let's try to make sure you, you know, don't have your, your bank accounts and, and your, your financial future, you know, jeopardized because of what you're doing with passwords. Yeah. I spent quite a bit of time over break. I'm migrating all my Flickr stuff over to Google photos and then also making, a copy on an external hard drive. And then I also use SmugMug because um, I try and do some professional 
geography stuff there. So, you know, I'm to the point where I don't believe Flickr is going to survive much. I mean, I don't know how much longer, but yeah, um, just I got to get it out of there. I got some photos from 2000. I think I got 20,000. I don't have 40,000, but I got to get those out of there so that I don't um, have anything that's just flying in the wind when it goes under. Have you found some automated tools that are helping you do that? Eric? You know, I'm mainly just like downloading an album at a time and just kind of doing a little bit of like checking to see what I have on there too. So it's time consuming, but it's also kind of forcing me to kind of go over what I have there. So I haven't used any like third party apps or anything. I know there's some out there that'll just, you know, pull the whole bunch in. Um, so I'm kind of taking my time, but I'm also doing that so I can kind of know what's there and I'm kind of looking at each album and stuff like that. So. Yeah. Well, on that note, I'll just say that uh, Alan Levine, who's CogDog on uh, Twitter, if you don't follow him, has had some great posts over the holidays. And today's was about attribution. And uh, he was also making the case for having your own domain. He wrote this whole song uh, to, to I'm a believer to um, I'm a reclaimer, reclaiming mm-hmm. the web. And uh, anyway, there's to saying, you know, it's good to not just have your content on platforms that are owned by other people. And then the whole thing about image attribution and how important it is, not just from a copyright standpoint, but also just from a from a goodness standpoint. You know, use somebody's picture. We perpetuate talk about fake news and the problems with with that as as publishers. We share articles. You know, we perpetuate the myth that any picture on the Web is fair game to just grab and use. You know, if we post it without a specific link attributing, you know, to that author and, and how that use happened. So. Perhaps those are things we can carry into 2017 as well. Those are good bandwagons to to be on. So, Eric, you want to take us to your your next topic or article? Um, yeah, I think the second thing, um, just something that's impacted me a lot in the last probably six months or so, is just 3D printing in the classroom. Um, I now have a, a Dremel 3D printer in our classroom, and I use it for my history class. Um, we use it in my tech class. And then we're going to try and use it a little bit more in our broadcasting class uh, this uh, second semester. But um, for me, I'd, I'd never used a 3D printer at all until August. And so it's been a kind of a fun challenge for me to go through the design process using things like Tinkercad and then getting it to the process of being able to print. And um, the printer I've been using has been super easy. It's kind of more of a consumer model type thing. So just, you know, the whole taking something from a thought to being able to design it and then modify it and the whole iteration process. And it's it's been something that's been fun for me. And then my students have really enjoyed that process as well. And it's just something that's a little bit different when you're able to transfer that from a thought and then you're holding it. I mean, I've seen students get super excited about something that they've been able to 3D print, Um, you know, just total light bulb moment, moment for most of them. And then you know, moving it from the, hey, it's cool, I just made a keychain type thing to, okay, let's think about solving some problems or, you know, we've we've created some things just around our own classroom. We created a, a modification for a teleprompter we have in our broadcast room where we had a two by four in duct tape for like the last probably five or six years. And so I came up on Tinkercad and just made the little objects so that all the cables would fit right and everything. And just like weird stuff like that. It's just been a kind of a cool like exploration type thing for me to kind of learn all that stuff that I really didn't know anything about uh, about five or six months ago. What brand 3D printer did you go with? And would you go with that again Um, if you were buying today? Yeah. And a disclaimer, it's a Dremel and Dremel. um, They have an ambassador teacher program. They just started this year. So um, 
the deal is they gave us one to use for this year. And then at the end of the year, they'll evaluate if we get to keep it or whatever. But it's a Dremel um, 3D40. So it's the second model. They did a um, idea builder printer like two years ago. And this is the second version. And I was terrified when I opened it because I didn't know what I was doing. And literally within an hour, I was 3D printing stuff. And um, it's been super easy to use. I actually have it over in the corner of our basement. I bring it home over break and print stuff and then carry it back. I've taken it to some conferences. So it's been super easy to use. Um, I've been really impressed with the the ease of being able to design stuff and then be able to print it on the, the Dremel. And Tinker, so, Tinkercad is your, your go-to design environment pretty much? Yeah. Um, it's, they've done some modifications just within the last couple of weeks. It's a lot faster than it was maybe a month ago. Um, it's a great program as far as you can create a classroom and you can have your students create a project, share it with you. Um, it's, it's simple enough that I think, you know, you could probably use it as young as maybe like probably third grade, fourth grade, but then you could get as advanced as you want to. Um, and it's all web-based. It's free. Um, so yeah, Tinkercad is what we've been using to design stuff. Thoughts on 3D printing? Um, I wish I still had my original Lego set so I could print some 3D printed Legos. There's amazing <laughs> stuff available. Uh, the plans you can download, you can do cool custom Lego stuff. Um, one note, there was a Lego store a block away from my apartment in Paris, and they had the uh, Notre Dame kit for about a thousand euros and the Arctic Triumph kit for 400 euros. And I almost came home with an Arctic Triumph kit. Uh, it would have been ridiculous purchase for me in about every way possible. Um, maybe competitive with other ridiculous purchases I've made uh, uh, nerd wise, but wow. Just wow. Well, so we'll, we'll, have, we'll let that be a segue. So uh, we are going to hopefully be in, we will, we'll, we'll end around the, the top of the hour. We may just go a little bit longer. Sometimes we're, we're, you know, 70 minutes or 75 minutes, but um we, we're going to need some stories from Jason. So Jason, I'm uh, going to give a little uh, station identification and then and give us uh, give us one of your favorite highlights uh, from your trip. Uh, we're excited that Peggy George and uh, Jamie Camp are joining us live. We know there'll be some of you listening after the fact, and we'd encourage you to fill out our listener survey, which you'll find at the top of our show notes at edtechsr.com. All of these links, as always, are on edtechsr.com slash links. And you can follow us on Twitter, where we will be letting you know what our show schedules are. Usually that's going to be on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central. But that that uh, could be could be altered. But I, that's still going to be working for me for the for the for the year. But Twitter's the best place. So, Jason, give us uh, give us a highlight. Did you have any surreal moments time where you're like, oh, my gosh, I, I can't believe we're doing this. Uh, well, uh, I really will say that, I mean, I've been to Europe uh, three or four times now. And so um, it's, you know, the, the broad Europe experience is, 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 is not new to me, which means that I can, I can be a real kind of savvy advanced traveler. But this trip was probably, if you could go back, you know, 30, I guess, 32, 33 years in, and talk to, you know, 10-year-old Jason and say that someday you're going to, at a Christmas time, you know, with without much effort and without, you know, this being the first or last time you're going to Europe, get to spend five days in London and five days in Paris and cruise around and do things in an awesome way that it would have, it would have made 10 year old Jason pretty happy. So it was a great trip, wonderful time to be there. Um, this is my second time in Paris. And what was very different from the last time I was there, which was in, in, in 2000 was that, um, 
you know, everyone has a smartphone now, and uh, the smartphone experience, I think, is an important part of being a tourist. And I'll go ahead and share my Geek of the Week now that um, it was important to me in 2011 when I was there and also in 2013 when I went to Iceland. Um, I had bought a, 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 a SIM card for my iPad um, and was able to get Internet access. And this time around, I wanted to – and it, we didn't need need them, but um, my wife and I decided that – that it was a good idea for us to try to get uh, cell phones that work there. So we actually bought cell phones for this. Both of, both of our devices, our main devices, are locked Verizon devices. Uh, Verizon uh, has a different technology than uh, AT&T and Sprint do in the United States. So they would have been less likely to be compatible with European cell phones. So we bought a couple of uh, Amazon Prime phones. Um, one was a blue BLU uh, Android phone. And the other one was a, a uh, Motorola Nexus or Motorola Nexus, Motorola um, G4 phone. Both of them uh, were hi- uh, highly discounted on Amazon. And we were able to both in London and in Paris go and pick up cheap uh, prepaid SIM cards, drop them in. We both had for five days London phone numbers, and then we had Parisian phone numbers, and we're able to text back and forth and find one another and communicate with one another. But the best part is, is we had access to Google Maps, which allowed us to easily navigate through, uh, you know, public transportation. Uh, more importantly to me is that we had access to apps. And for example, the Louvre has a great app that uh, is is Bluetooth aware. So I'm certain there's the little beacons that are located throughout the museum and it knew what room I was in. So I was able to go to the app and it would give me interpretive information of paintings um, there. Um, we uh, are, uh, both my wife and I are big fans of Rick Steves, the travel writer. He has an excellent app on iOS and Android that's called the Rick Steves Audio Tour app where uh, you can download audio tours he's created. So we were able to go through the British Museum with a 90-minute audio tour that he created and hit the highlights and kind of get a narrative story for the museum as opposed to just trying to interpret, you know, this room full of Assyrian uh, uh, artifacts, which is is great if you are a world history teacher. It's not as interesting if you don't have a lot of background in um uh, 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 Assyrian history. Um, the same was true of the Louvre. The same was true of the Museum d'Orsay. Um, the same was true was two neighborhood walks we took um, in in the area. Um, and you know, that I, I do think that the, the smartphone and um, access to the internet does add some enrichment um, to um, uh, uh, my experience um, as a traveler. And I've now been traveling internationally for 16 years. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's really made a big difference compared to 2000 when I first traveled to Europe for a month and, you know, we were still calling ahead on, on pay phones to get to the next city, um, and, and figure out where we we're staying. And, um, you know, I, I think the technology does really in, enrich that process. Um, a ton of selfie sticks everywhere in, 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 in Paris, not by locals, but, we think that this time of year tends to prefer uh, tourists from Asia in Paris. Uh, the museums were overrun with folks, but relatively few Americans. Uh, and so I think that this might be a common time of year for Asian tourists to come to the region. Um, they, there seems to be a, an affinity for the selfie stick amongst that group of tourists. And so uh, the Louvre was a, a mass of people that were all, you know, uh, I need to be able to do this in the frame here, you know, with their selfie stick pointing in 
um, that, and then I, I, I always joke about this to just, or I used to joke about this with students when I was still in, in my uh, high school history classroom, but you know, the Mona Lisa is the, the most amazing and disappointing painting you could possibly see. Uh, it's in a room, uh, not all by herself quite. There's actually a couple of amazing paintings there that get ignored because people are cramming in there. But, uh, the last time I was there again, 16 years ago, um, I, I couldn't get that close to it without kind of getting an elbow from a, a couple of, 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 of uh, octanarian tourists. Um, it was worse this time around, but the only difference was, was that first of all, there's a little cell phone uh, above every, everyone's head and then two selfie sticks sticking up like little antennas where they were trying to get a photo of the, um, of, of the Mona Lisa. But yeah, it's pr pretty amazing trip. And um, I would strongly recommend that, um, you know, the difference between now and when I first started traveling internationally is that you know, there's a lot more interesting ways to do things now. We stayed in an Airbnb in Paris, so we had a little tiny Parisian apartment that we uh, ended up renting for much, much more cheaply than a, a really nice hotel. And so we had a great apartment in a neighborhood as opposed to a hotel. We had a kitchen so we could go buy groceries and save a little bit on food. Um, and, you know, Wi-Fi access was, wasn't wicked fast, unfortunately, but was good enough, right? Like, it didn't really matter. So, um, yeah, a pretty amazing time, I think, to be a traveler in the world. And, you know, in light of the events in the last 24 months related to uh, Europe in particular, experiencing some some pretty serious terrorist attacks, uh, we were certainly hypervigilant. Uh, we wanted to, we discussed, you know, where a meeting point would be if something bad happened. Um, but um, now is more important time than ever to, I think, travel and see things and experience other people's experiences and talk with others. Um, London's a very international city. Um, my wife first visited there, um, or actually uh, lived in, in, in uh, the UK for six months, um, 16 years ago, and noted that London now has an amazing variety of international food uh, that was not a, a, a phenomenon uh, as much, um, you know, 16 years ago. And so uh, noticing those trends, seeing where cities are, um, uh, getting asked about our, our, our president elect um, by about a dozen people, um, uh, you know, or, or hearing these conversations uh, is, is an important part, I think, of, you know, kind of the global citizenship that we, we all need to embrace. So if any of you all had doubts, if we could get Jason to talk about his trip, those, those <laughs> doubts have, have just been, been available. Okay, I'm, I got to throw this one at Eric uh, because this was on some of the <clears throat> the closing end of year shows. And Jason, I didn't talk about it a whole lot. Pokemon Go 2016, big, big, big deal, little deal. Did that affect your life, your students' lives? Um, it did not affect my life at all. I don't have the app. I've never used it. My kids don't use it. Um, I mean, at, when it, like the first week it came out, I mean, there was some discussion about it in my classroom, but um, yeah, hardly okay. very minimal for me. But yeah, yeah, that didn't make my list either. But somebody else had mentioned it, and it was such a big deal. And so anyway, well, uh, we are getting close to the top of the hour. Um, I think I'd like to touch on at least. Uh, I think I've Jason's got one. We, you and I both have one topic, and then we'll we'll do the rest of our geeks of the week. I don't know if this is going to be a big deal for for everybody else, but. I think the number one article, and this was shared here on the EdTech Situation Room uh, by Jason, 
for the whole year was this Tristan Harris article, how technology hijacks people's minds from a magician and Google's design ethicist. Uh, this is something that he got on the note to self podcast. And it talks about how, you know, likes and just social media as it's, as it's been created to focus on engagement and eyeballs and, you know, um, stickiness and all that uh, really functions kind of like a slot machine for us. And I put it under the topic of screen time with uh, a CNN article from earlier in December, how much you know time do parents spend on screens about as much as their teens. And then a November article that uh, teens spend a mind boggling nine hours a day using media report says. So uh, just having come back from, from three days with my parents, you know, last night uh, got, got to, to go out for a nice dinner and, and her request was very reasonable and it was great. You know, it was, Hey, let's put all the phones away. So uh, my questions to you guys are how have screens impacted your, your holidays? Jason's already kind of told a little bit about that. Uh, so maybe you can go first, Eric. And then uh, any thoughts that you all have about screen time and, you know, these statistics and kind of how that might fit into digital citizenship or just, you know, where we are at school. Well, uh, my wife and I have a 13-year-old and a 9-year-old, both girls, and um, they do considerable amount of screen time. Um, my 13-year-old likes to code a lot on Scratch, and so she spends a lot of time coding. Um, my 9-year-old tends to veer more towards YouTube. She wants to have her own cooking show, um, things like that. I know Wes has talked about that a lot, and I actually subscribe to Rachel's YouTube channel, so her videos come across, but um, so I guess we we do a substantial amount of screen time, I guess, but um, they also do a lot of other things. They they read. We do a lot of you know making stuff. I mean, so yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, there are times when I look around our living room and there's four of us and we're all on a screen, but I don't think it's to the point where we're like four people individually isolated in different parts of the house and we don't ever talk to each other. So. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we try and balance it as much as we can. We do try and keep it away from the table. Um, my wife and I obviously would be the main people to have it at the table with cell phones, but we try to make it a point when we have a dinner going on that we do not have cell phones out. So yeah, just trying to keep a balance, but also knowing that they're doing some incredible things with screens and I don't want to, to, you know, diminish that either. How about you, Jason? Well, I think that that that, that uh, what Eric suggests is, is proper. It's balance, right? And I think being proactive about helping, um, you know, kiddos figure out that balance is an important part of adulthood now. And and I think also I I, I do a presentation on this now. I've done it I think six or seven times in the last eighteen months. Uh, it's called "You're So Distracted You Probably Don't Think This Presentation's About You." Um, and I, I I find that adults are actually a little worse than kids in regards to being at least cognizant that they are. Um, uh, uh, not not a hundred percent with us when when they're their um, phones distracting you. And in fact, uh, 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 someone that uh, I recently saw a notification on Facebook of a friend of mine on Facebook who is a, a an edtech uh, uh, entrepreneur that that went to the high school that I, I taught at. Um, he said that he's turned off all notifications on his iPhone except for messages. And that's the only one he now he does. That's one of actually my recommended strategies that I think teachers should be talking to students about being very purposeful about what you're allowing, um, you know, your device to do to poke you on the shoulder. And so I, I think if, if anything, 
we are still trying to find uh, you know social mores on on how this works. Uh, we're still working on what's polite or not, and you know it's also understanding these devices are extremely important and that they're empowering and they have an important purpose. Um, in, in, in our global democracy. Um, I will note an interesting thing. Um, I use my device a lot traveling. I deleted my work email account off of there for the two weeks I was gone because I was on vacation. And I, you know, did connect with my, um, you know, my, uh, one coworker in particular who's a, a good friend, but, um, you know, I didn't really participate in work for two weeks. And that, that's not a strategy that, you know, 2010 Jason would have been very good at, but, um, you know, that I think making purposeful decisions is a big part of this process. All right. Well, you want to go ahead and uh, give us a little quick summary of your final topic and then we'll respond to that and then do our remaining geeks of the week. Yep. It, it, it is a, a December, which means that it's time for us to do the yearly question of whether or not Apple is dying as a company. Um, I will tell you that uh, I, I do think that something's awry at Apple and that it needs to get resolved uh, I, from uh, everything I can read, even from a, from objective uh, a journalist. Uh, the, the, the new MacBook Pro is 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 really, really, really terrible on battery. Um, I didn't post the link here, but Consumer Reports released a, uh, a, a report uh, a, a about two weeks ago, um, that it's the first time that they they haven't given a recommended buy on a on a MacBook um, since they've been doing uh, computer recommendations, and their reason why was because the battery life on the new MacBook Pros um, is apparently terrible, and it's not that it's just terrible. They were able to get 17 hours out of. One of them, the first time they ran the battery down, and then went to six hours, and then went to three hours. The third time they tried to run the battery down, and Apple's clever solution was to just take the battery indicator out of the toolbar. But um, that is not the problem, as it turns out. And hand wringing about the replacement of all the former ports with USB C and all the stuff um, suggests that. Uh, you know, Apple's just not as Apple-y as, as, as it used to be. The reason why I mention this topic now is because there is a great article uh, that was uh, very recent. Um, it is from uh, uh, today, actually. I'm sorry, yesterday, that's from Engadget about uh, how it was a hard year to be an Apple fan. And it points out some things that we've mentioned on the show before. There was no processor updates uh, for any Mac product this year except for the Mac Pro. Um, which was the, the release of the new version of, of, of that platform. Um, iPads didn't release much of an update this year. The iPad Air is still on version 2, which is 24 months old now. Um, something, they're just not hitting on enough cylinders, I think, to be the company that they are. And so, if anything, um, you know, I don't think Apple is dead. I don't think Microsoft is suddenly going to take the moniker of, 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 of innovation or the innovator of technology simply because they happen to sell a $5,000, you know, very beautiful, uh, tablet-y looking desktop computer that by all accounts is, is pretty sweet. Um, but at the same time, um, I do think that that uh, I hope 2017 finds that Apple at least becomes a little more responsive in the way it is treating um, its its platforms. Eric, any thoughts about about Apple? Um, I mean, yeah, I just I've heard several things about the whatever the icon stick or whatever on the top the on the new one where you touch the is like virtually worthless. I don't know of any. I haven't seen anything where anybody's really said anything positive about that. Um, as somebody that is constantly taking pictures or video and 
you know, putting an SD card in, um, you know, having difference with the ports and all that kind of stuff is not, um, and I haven't been looking at buying a new one. Um, but I just, I haven't heard good things about it either. So, yeah. All right. Well, Eric, uh, do you want to take us to your geek of the week and then I'll do mine. And I think we'll probably need to wrap this, uh, wrap this end of your show up. So originally I had, uh, the Google photo scan app and I couldn't remember if you guys covered it. I know you guys did a couple weeks ago. So I did want to bring up, um, something as a geek of the week about two or three years ago. Um, I was always signed up on a Google as somebody that would do research if they wanted to do it. They contacted me a couple of years ago and asked if we would install a Echo B, um, internet based, um, thermostat in our house. Um, obviously to collect data, we did that. They installed it. They gave it to us for free. Um, right towards the end of that, like three month period of collecting data, they announced that they had bought Nest. And so, um, we've had the Echo B thermostat. Um, but we've, we've through our power, um, company over the last two years have been part of a program where in the summer when it gets super hot, they won't cycle us through like every fourth or fifth cycle on their air conditioning. So, um, if anybody, I know you guys have talked about Nest in the past, but there are a lot of, um, power companies that are giving Nest to their um, customers. And we just got a notification about three weeks ago. Hey, since you're already part of this program where we kind of don't cycle you through every once in a while when it gets really hot, you know, you guys qualify. Do you want a free Nest? And so it took me like, you know, five minutes to fill out the form. They sent it to me two days later. And so at some point in the next couple of days, I'll be installing um, Nest. Um, they say that three out of four people could install it without an electrician. So my wife's trying to bet if I'm one of the four people that can't do it. <laughs> this is a I, litmus test of your think, DIY maker. I think I can. Mojo. But, but um, if anybody, you know, for months I've thought, you know, gosh, I'd really like to get a nest and kind of get all that stuff going. So if anybody out there is listening, if you want to contact your, um, you know, your power company or whatever and just see, um, there are, I know a lot of different companies that are, um, offering this and um, it's a $250, you know, piece of hardware that um, helps them out, helps you out. So if you are interested in the Nest, instead of going out and maybe purchasing one right away, check and see if there's some kind of incentive program with your, your power provider. Cool. Well, we uh, just were over uh, at our pastor's house, new pastor, and, and he actually put one in too, which I was pretty impressed with. And he was saying, yeah, not, not a big deal at all. So I guess it's, it's a doable thing. So my Geek of the Week is a book, and I'm actually reading a paper book. It is so hard for me to read a paper book. Oh, my gosh. Uh, not only because my eyes and I'm, like, you know, doing this. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, I'm just so used to reading electronic. But the book is by Andy Stern. It is called Raising the Floor, How a Universal Basic Income Can Renew Our Economy and Rebuild the American Dream. Uh, this is something that I heard about as we were talking about AI throughout the year and and people like Elon Musk saying, hey, by the way, you know, uh, the con continued autom automation of the factory and uh, the ability of technology to not only do menial tasks, but also uh, more cognitive uh, tasks, is, it's going to continue to disintermediate the, the population, uh, driving you know, down I, I 35 today, you know, within five to 10 years, uh, and it may be even faster than that, uh, cross, you know, continental trucking is going to be completely disrupted by self-driving cars. And so Elon Musk and others are saying that a universal basic income, which should basically be like, you know, here, everyone gets $30,000 a year, no matter what, if you're over 18, is going to be what we'll have to look at to not have 
tremendous upheaval in our society in terms of the uh, the un- the unemployed and the disgruntled masses. And it's it. I think it's just something really important that we need to be talking about. And I'm not completely on board with it, but um, I will be sharing a blog post probably uh, in the next two days about a little bot that I wrote uh, created <clears throat> using uh, if this then that and Twitter and Google News and um, it does uh, it's UBI News. But anyway, it's just generating uh, a pretty interesting stream of articles and videos and things like that about UBI. So I will probably post a book review of that before too long because my goal and I only have a few few days remaining of the holiday is to finish that over the holiday break. So to take us out, uh, if you'll just tell us uh, what your day job is, where we can find you online. And Eric, I'm particularly interested in whether you're keeping up with your your YouTube uh, vlogging. I know you kind of switch from audio podcasting, you know, over to, to YouTube. So you want to tell us a little bit, just again, remind us where to find you online and uh, where people can read more of your ideas. Sure. Uh, Eric Langhorst, I teach at uh, Discovery Middle School in Liberty, Missouri, uh, eighth grade U.S. history, technology broadcasting. Uh, my Twitter is E. Langhorst. Um, I did a blog and a podcast starting in about 2005 at speakingofhistory.com and um, kind of pod faded probably three or four years ago. And as a broadcast teacher, wanted to kind of maybe you know, practice a little bit more of what I preach. And so last spring, I did start a vlog called The History Geek Teacher. And I think I have 10 episodes. I want to be a little bit more ambitious about that this upcoming year. My students actually get on me if I don't vlog enough, but uh, it's mainly content for history teachers, geeky type stuff. Um, and that's at the history geek teacher, um, dot com. So um, yeah, I'm going to try and do a little bit more vlogging. I did try and kind of set up a little bit more of a studio type thing at home. Um, you know, video vlogging is a little bit more interesting because you you do obviously have to have the visual part of it, and you have to do this balance between yourself of um, just making it good and not perfect. Otherwise, you never get anything published. And so um, I do want to become a little bit more prolific with that. But, yeah, um, just kind of odd history, geeky type stuff on the blog. So, Oh, good. Jason? Well, uh, my name is Jason Neifer, and I am the assistant director, assistant director, and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school in uh, Montana. We're located on the University of Montana campus, and I'm also the tech savvy administrator in residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. I blog at blog.ncce.org, and of course, this is Stash for for those of you that are watching this on video. Uh, she likes to make an appearance once in a while. Uh, she's a very very lonely kitty in the last two weeks. Um, the um, I'm also on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, where I post usually about 10 or 15 links a week based on what I'm reading and what interests me about the world of technology. And she has taken over your microphone. So I am Wes Fryer. I am W Fryer on Twitter, and my blog is speedofcreativity.org. And most weeks you can catch Jason and I and sometimes some special guests here on the EdTech Situation Room. We want to thank you for checking in and tuning in on our final show of 2016. We want to wish everybody a very happy new year and encourage you to follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR and check out our show. Please leave a review of us on iTunes. Uh, definitely fill out our survey, which we would uh, just love to kind of know where, where you're at if you're listening. And many thanks to Peggy George and Jamie Camp for joining us live online. Happy new year, everybody. <laughs>